This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. If you ever want your soul to dance in the clouds, you will at some point have to juggle lightning and taste the thunder. Christopher Poindexter I can't really move my hands like i i realized that like my hands are kind of a little twitchy and i'm like they're not they're not cold. like they were cold but like this is not just like cold and i tried to make fists and i couldn't i couldn't make my hands make fists and they just would kind of twitch and like i tried to kind of feel my hands and it was kind of like that pins and needles sensation that can fall asleep on your hand i'm doc and this is the john freaking mirpod Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Welcome back to another week on the trail. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Let's start off with the obligatory reminder. If you are enjoying the podcast, take just a minute, help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, let's get to this week's guest. Well, some of our faithful listeners out there have heard about this week's guest before. If you remember my chat with Pepe Le Pew, aka Jose Zambrano, he told the story about a guy he met on the trail that had a wild story about a lightning strike. Through a happy coincidence, I was able to connect with that guy. Welcome to the John Freaking Muir Pod, Grant Breidenbach. 
thank you so much for having me. Really, really great to be on this evening. Do you remember that conversation with, with Pepe Le Pew? I do. You know, he, he reached out to me actually um, about, I think right after he had recorded it and he, I don't think he quite mentioned that I was going to be on the show, but I, I thought I kind of might knew, uh, might know that I might be on. And, uh, and sure enough, I saw the episode come out and he, uh, he mentioned me and I was like, wow, that's, that's really cool. I ran into him uh, just on, just on the North side of Donahue pass. And we had just this really, really brief interaction, but we all were, we all were like absolutely freaked out about the weather. And I think that just like this instant bonding moment. And we just quickly traded social media information and, uh, and we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be chatting here today if it wasn't for that. So I'm just super stoked about that. Fantastic. And we're not going to get into the story yet. We're going to save that as kind of a teaser for the, you know, later in the totally. episodes. You have to, Bad you have weather. To, that's the teaser. <laughs> that's right. You have to listen in and find out about uh, this, this bizarre, just fantastic, uh, crazy, scary lightning strike uh, issue. So stay tuned for that. All right. Hey, Grant, do you have a, uh, a trail name? Because that's what we go by here on the, on the podcast. We Absolutely. go by trail names. Yeah. Doc, uh, what's, what's your trail name? My trail name's Detour. Detour. Oh, I love it. I love it. And we, of course, we have to hear the story behind the trail name. How'd you, how'd you end up with Detour? Yeah. So I, I was coming over, well, actually it was the day after meeting um, Pepe Le Pew and I was coming over, um, over Donahue Pass and uh, I ran into this, uh, this couple, uh, Maddie and Leo, and just kind of, you know, how it is, you kind of run to people a few times throughout a day and kind of keep crisscrossing. And uh, I was just like really positive and I was telling them a little about my plan. And, and just that very day, only having known them a little bit, they're like, you're a detour. And the reason they called me detour was, um, I, I mean, I did the whole John Muir trail, but I, I really, I think there's a couple specific spots and we could talk about this where I think the trail takes kind of a stupid route. And I think with a slight detour, you can, uh, you can have a lot more fun and take, take a little bit better route. Um, I don't, I think the forest service did a great job of, of planning the route for most of it, but there's a couple spots, especially in, uh, in the Northern section of the trail where I think you can really add on to it. So actually over the whole course of it with resupplies and from the top of Whitney down, I did actually just about 250 miles instead of 211. So because of that, uh, they called me detour and, uh, and they're always, everyone kind of made the most of that. Well, that's great. And you know what? I want to get right down to it uh, right now about the, the stupid route. I, I want to hear it. I haven't heard this before from anybody else saying, Hey, you know what? That part of the trail, that's just, that's, that's just ridiculous. We, it should have gone this way. So I'm, I'm dying to hear, you know, what, what your detour is, what your recommended Definitely. detour is. So I've got, I've got two, two key detours I'll share with you. First one, and I think this is an obvious one that a lot of people do, but, you know, it's clouds rest. Um, you know, the, the, the main John Muirfell section there, you know, burned about a decade ago or so now. I can't remember exactly how long. Um, but, you know, it, it just kind of goes through this. It's a lovely valley. Don't get me wrong. But without that much effort, you can go up to, to clouds rest um, and you can basically go up to clouds rest then come down through the Sunrise Lakes and then pop out right near the Sunrise Lakes High Sierra Camp. And then you just pop out in this beautiful meadow kind of near cathedral, uh, the cathedral peaks and cathedral lake. We head up to Walmy through there and, you know, there's probably about a 10 mile section of the trail that you never do. So maybe there's some purists out there that say, oh, we didn't hike the John Muir trail, but like your own hike. And I think it's a great, it's a great section. I think that one specifically adds 
maybe seven or eight miles. I can't remember. I'd have to look at all the, the numbers. The second detour, I think, is even better and is a little bit less known. Um, some people take a little bit out and back detour and will kind of hike up towards um, some of the lakes uh, just before you get to Red's Meadow, um, which are kind of some of those uh, mineral lakes. You see a lot of people go up to like Azida Lake or Iceberg Lake. Mm-hmm. Well, the beauty of it is you can actually continue up to Cecile Lake. Um, it's kind of this steep, it's kind of a second class-ish kind of scree trail up, but you continue up to Cecile Lake and and then you either camp at Cecile Lake or to continue through. I camped at Cecile Lake, probably one of the best campsites of the entire trip. I mean, mind-blowing. It also was way less people. There were just a couple of rock climbers up there and people on kind of some like weekend trips. Uh, it was around the 4th of July coming out of, um, out of Red Meadow. And then you drop down into Minaret Lake and then you pick up the trail um, right near like Johnson Lake, um, Minaret Falls area. And so you eventually you end up not, uh, you know, seeing Rosalie Lake or Shadow Lake. You do cut those off, but, you know, you're just kind of underneath that big, you know, kind of volcanic ridge for most of that kind of down in that low elevation valley, one of the lowest areas, um, you know, outside of Yosemite Valley, kind of down in the, the headwaters, if I believe that's the, the San, yeah, the San Joaquin. Um, but instead you get to go through the minerals, which like is this incredible landscape that's very much, you know, what the John Muir Trail is about, you know, kind of over these passes and, and at the base of mountains. And so it adds, I think close to 15 miles. I can't remember, but it adds, it adds a bit, you know, it, it really a budget an extra day for this, but you go through some of the most spectacular scenery doing it. And it's a little bit, some of the most, I'd easily say it's some of the most technical, uh, you know, hiking on the trail because everything else is graded for stock and even Forester Pass. You can take your, your little horse and pony up there if you want. Um, but you would be very hard pressed to get a, uh, some livestock up to Cecile Lake and whatnot. Uh, um, so that, that was a real highlight for me um, and a great detour. So those are, those are two that I'll share. Hey, you convinced me. That, that sounds amazing. Uh, tell me, you said that the Cecile Lake was, was one of the best campsites on the trail. What in your mind makes for a, a fantastic campsite? Tell me some of the, the qualities of Cecile Lake. I'm definitely somebody that needs a view and near-ish the water. I'm all for, you know, camping at the right distance from, from the water, but I, I like to look out over the lake. Now, you got to look hard to find camps at Cecile, the Cecile Lake. They're only... Um, there's only a handful down near, um, it's, it's really at the back of the lake. It looks like it might be the outlet and it looks like maybe historically, like in geological time, it maybe at one point is the outlet from the lake. Um, but it's, it's really the, uh, Southeast side of the lake, um, kind of on the back there, there's just a couple small campsites. You're not going to get your family four person tent in there. Like you're going to get your little, uh, one person bivy tent, or maybe, you know, I got, uh, I actually camped with a two-person tent. Um, it was this REI tent that um, is their flashier too. And the weight difference between the one person and the two-person was so negligible um, that it was awesome with the two-person. And with the weather, as we'll get into, was like a total godsend. Um, so, uh, you know, I was able to get the little two-person tent up there. And it's kind of up on this high point. You look out over the lake and you're right at the base of the minarets. Because the minarets are something you see usually from a distance, Right. And they look awesome, but it's a whole other story being right at the base of them and just like 
being kind of in awe of them and they're just all encompassing around you. I mean, so it's just like this total like awe-inspired view. And the next morning I woke up, um, it's Cecile Lake and you can see rock climbers up there on, uh, on one of the minarets. And, you know, you get to just sit there and enjoy that. Where else on, you know, on the trail do you get to, to, uh, to enjoy that? So uh, relatively level ground, relatively easy access to, um, uh, to water, but number one for me is the view. Okay. And there, you mentioned you went through a lot right there. And I want to, I want to touch on a couple of things. Totally. We are, we are going to get to uh, some gear discussion and we will talk about the weather a little bit later on. But I love I love the the phrase that you dropped in there, geologic time, because, you know, that's I'm going to get deep right here. So that, that, I think that's part of the allure of the great outdoors and especially the Sierras. Yes. It kind of puts things in perspective. Right. I mean, these, these, these vistas, these, this, this, uh, these incredible landscapes were created over the course of, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. And you talk about geologic time and we are just an eye blink in in the space of geologic time. And so when you're out there, you kind of feel that immensity, you feel that, that, that vastness and it kind of Mm -hmm. puts things into perspective. Yeah. You just, you just feel, um, you feel so small, you know, you're, you're a visitor, you know, really um, in a geologic, you know, perspective, you're just, you know, a speck of dust, so to speak. Um, you know, you will come and, and you will go, but you know, those mountains are going to, are going to endure, you know, they're going to stand uh, the test of time, but at the same time, you know, ultimately they are, you know, they are changing. Um, you know, something I'll touch on is on my last day, you know, I actually experienced a, um, a gigantic rock slide, you know, so they're, it's this weird paradox because on one hand they're so static from our human perspective, but at the same time, they are constantly changing at every moment, every freeze and every thaw and every drop of rain and every gust of wind, the mountains are fundamentally changing and everyone gets a slightly different perspective though uniquely tied. And we all kind of share that common experience. Yeah. Well said, well said. And then the other the other, you're talking about being at the foot of the minarets and, and what a vista that is. And uh, I had a, a guest on previously who I think summed it up perfectly. And my listeners have heard this before. So just bear with me. I want to share mm-hmm. this with Detour. Um, Jay Wilson talked about you know showing pictures to, to people who haven't been on the trail and you, you're trying to convey to them you know how, how awesome, how magnificent it is out there. And you show them a picture and they say, oh yeah, that's, that's nice. And you just want to shake them. It's, it's not nice. It is, it is, it is life-changing. Yes. And Jay summed it up perfectly. He said, that is the curse of thousand word pictures. Cause a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Mm-hmm. It is, it is the curse of thousand word pictures when you are in million word locations. How about that? Yeah. Does, does not boy, come across, does not do it justice. No, it does not. And boy, Cecilia, Cecilia Lake, is a million word location. I mean, the whole John Muir trail, of course, is a, uh, is a billion word trail, but, um, but oh, I like that. Especially. I li- I'm going to, I'm going to use that detour. Right. I'm going to use yeah, that in future episodes. Take a that billion one. word trail. <laughs> Write that one down. Yes. All right. Hey, detour. Have you, have you listened to the podcast before? You know, I, I was really not a listener until uh, Pepe Lapu um, told me about it. I, I, uh, I'm new to the podcast. 
Okay. So I only ask not to put you on the spot or anything. I just want to make sure that you are familiar with some different segments that we do. Okay. Uh, The most important I want to give you a heads up on is the pro tip insight of the week. And that is a segment towards the end of the episode where I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to say detour. What is your pro tip insight of the week? What little nugget of wisdom can you share with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better? Mm. So so don't be surprised. Think about that. Sometimes you'll get an idea through the, the natural flow of conversation here. All right. Good to know. Okay, good. Hey, another feature we've been doing this season is the must bring gear review sponsored by the ultralight backpacking gear company, Outdoor Vitals. And here's how it works. If you were to let a stranger pack your bag with pretty much generic gear for a multi-day hike, what is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? And if you've got a particular brand for that specific piece of gear, even better. So Detour, what is your must bring piece of gear out there? Absolutely. So for me, that is my bear vault. Um, bear vault is, is really central to my, to my packing. Um, I think a lot of people look at their, at their bear canister as, as something that's of a burden, you know, something that's extra that, Oh, I've got my base weight and, Oh, you know, the bear canister on top of this. Right. And sometimes you'll even see that physically, right. They'll put their bear canister on top of their pack. And, and sometimes there are packs that just flat out or, are tiny people are trying to really go for some really efficient base weights. Um, but, you know, I think the, the bear canister is really integral to the experience and it's at the heart of it. Um, you know, if you, if you're going to go out in the wilderness um, and you're really going to, to enjoy that wilderness experience and you want it to maintain as a wilderness experience, not just for you and for your personal safety, but for all of those who are going to follow you, um, I think a bear canister is absolutely crucial. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not just also for, for bear territory. Um, there's a lot of wild animals that, that really want to get after your food. And so whether it's a, it's a mouse on the Appalachian trail that wants to, you know, eat your goodies and you're going to be hungry or maybe get a, uh, a sickness or disease, um, you know, having proper food storage can, can put a stop to that. Um, and, and it's larger, you know, too, um, I think experiencing bears is one of the most magical things on something like the Amir trail. I'm sure a lot of your guests, you know, one of, when they talk about their top five moments, I'm sure bears is something that just consistently comes up, right. You know, top five moment bear, you know, what would you say? Probably, probably 20%, 30% of people say that is the bears in their top five moments. There's a lot of conversation about bear. A lot of yeah. conversation about bear. Exactly. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, so I, I tell we, people, I tell people, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You have to be faster than your hiking partner. You know, sweep exactly. the, le- sweep the leg. Solo. That's right. Sweep the leg and then head on out. Yeah. Uh-huh. What if you're hiking solo? Well, then, then you have to be faster than the bear. Yeah. Then you need a bear canister. Yeah. And you mentioned um, it's not just for bears. It's also, you know, you mentioned mice and there's also a lot of very plump mam- marmots on the exactly. trail. So. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those marmots, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of rodents, including in the, you know, the Sierra can carry hantavirus, which is a pretty nasty disease that I would prefer not to, uh, not to get, you know, um, mm-hmm. and also just, you know, experiencing, I think, I think experiencing a mammal that large, you know, the, a bear is a really magical experience. And, um, you know, ultimately I think we have responsibility to to kind of preserve that experience it's it's kind of part of the holistic experience of going on the john muir trail is that you might get to experience a bear and the reality of it is with with the growth and the popularity of the trail both from people you know on the the john muir trail itself as well as other 
you know, kind of weekend or week long segments. Um, with the explosive growth of traffic, um, despite the permitting, you know, the wildlife are really, really under a lot of pressure. And um, it's our responsibility to, to protect that wildlife. And, and it really starts with uh, proper bear resistant food storage. Um, you know, bears won't learn that, that humans are a source of food and it fundamentally changes the reaction. Uh, there's, a, there's a wildlife photographer by the name of uh, Tahoe Tugi. He's this guy up in uh, the Tahoe area. And he does a ton with uh, basically like remote sensor cameras. And, and you see that bears, when, you know, when they're in their natural habitat, not around people at all, they're just these totally different creatures. Um, and you hear these, these experiences of bears being, you know, honestly, sometimes downright scary and aggressive um, around folks, um, you know, both on the John Muir Trail and whatnot. And that's, you know, that's really not you know, black bear's natural demeanor. Um, and that's something that has really increased as a result of the pressure um, and bears getting a taste of human food. So it's, it's something that we can do to, um, to really help out the wildlife. And so for me, you know, a bear cancer, specifically a bear vault, is, is really at the center of my packing. Yes, agreed. Agreed. You know, I had a former guest on, uh, goes by the name of Ape Man. And Ape Man. He, yeah, he, he, he's a longtime hiker. You know, I don't know how many decades in the Sierras and in Yosemite. And he talks about the early days where uh, they did not have bear canisters and they have to, you know, hang their food. And what would happen is that, um, bears, when they become accustomed to food and they become you know, more aggressive towards getting that food and the, the Rangers in Yosemite or animal control would have to relocate those bears. That would be the first step to relocate them. And they'd relocate them to like a, a lesser trafficked area up in Northern Yosemite. And he, ape man and his buddies would go camp up at, up in upper Yosemite, Northern Yosemite, and would have to spend their nights, you know, fending off the bears, you know, throwing, throwing rocks and trying to scare them away. And, uh, it's it pretty, pretty, uh, um, antsy moments there. I mean, didn't know what was going to happen. And so, you know, the, the worst thing that could happen is that a bear becomes accustomed to eating human food and living off of humans and, and bothering humans. And then that bear has to be put down. So, yep. so important to, to, to carry a bear canister and, and take care of your, your food properly. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was, I was talking to my friend, Marin, who was at the clouds rest junction and, uh, I'm not exactly sure. I don't think she was at Lilius Somebody Valley. I'm not 100% sure where in that area she was camped, but somewhere near the Clouds Rest Junction. And uh, and she had a bear approach her and her husband. Um, and the bear you know, was incredibly aggressive, you know, got um, its teeth on the bear canister and the bear vault um, did its job, withstood the bear and they were eventually able to scare the bear off. There was all sorts of slobber and scratch marks on, on the canister. Um, but that bear you know, clearly knew that that was a, a way to get to food. Um, and, you know, it, I really wonder, you know, by the end of the summer, you know, was there somebody that say didn't close their canister, had the lid open perhaps, you know, and, right. you know, there's even a chance that bear is not, is not around anymore, you know? So it's, uh, I think really the time is now and, um, and we all have, we all really have a collective responsibility there. Yep. Um, something I saw along the trail this summer was, you know, something that was different to me, especially too, is there's a lot of ranger stations along the John Muir Trail. You know, these little, these little backcountry, backcountry stations, especially 
um, once you get into like say Kings Canyon National Park, but even, even throughout the trail. And I do not think there was a single ranger station that I passed by that did not have a handwritten note from the ranger this summer that, you know, had something along the lines of active, bold, aggressive, you know, uh, bear in the area, you know, that's, that's really going after, you know, campers food and potentially even the campers um, themselves. And, you know, be on the, you know, be on the alert, you know, hanging food does not work. You know, you need an approved bear canister um, in this area. And, you know, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's throughout the entire, throughout the entire trail. Um, and so that was, that was something that really, really caught me off guard too. Yeah. I remember seeing those same notices this summer. It was, it was, yep. uh, not encouraging. It was, I don't want to say depressing, but it, you know, it's, it's a sign that, that something's not quite right out there, that people they're, they're getting access to food and becoming more aggressive. So that's not, yep. that's not, that's not good for people. And it's not good for bears. So no, people, not at all. People do what you're supposed to do out there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, let's go back to gear for a second. I want to, I want to talk about your, your kit and what you used out there on the trail. Definitely. What, what, uh, let's start off with your base weight. You know what your base weight was? Definitely. So, um, before any food and water, I was actually right at 21 pounds. So that includes bear canister and everything. So not the lightest person out there. Um, easily the heaviest item I actually had was my backpack, um, which was my Osprey Aether AG 60, which okay. comes in almost at a whopping five pounds, but I couldn't be happier. It's like the most comfortable pack ever built. And it's like all heat molded to my hips and everything. And, uh, it was, it was awesome. And, uh, and there were a couple other things that people told me like, Oh, you got to get rid of, like, I had a, like a proper, like uh, dry treated pack cover, you know? And, and somebody was like, Oh, come on. Like you got to just line your, line your pack with a trash bag. And as I'm, as we get to weather, I am so glad that I had a proper pack cover that, you know, that went over my, um, that went over my entire, uh, my entire pack. Um, that was a total game changer. Nice. And we, we heard about your tent, two-person REI tent. Uh, yep. How about your, what's your sleeping system? You use a sleeping bag or a quilt? Yep. So I had the uh, REI Magma 15 comes in at 28.2 ounces. Um, and that that tent uh, is an incredible 36 ounces for, for a two-person tent, which was just, you know, mind-blowing really to me, um, especially for, you know, you know I think my perspective on REI gear before like really getting this was like, Oh, REI stuff is a cottage manufacturer. It's going to be pretty heavy and not, you know, not the right option for me, but I was pleasantly surprised with both the Magma 15 and the uh, flash air two tent. Now you and I, we had an opposite approach uh, this past summer. I actually went with a, a bivy very oh. low profile. And in terms, when, when you're in bad weather, a bivy is not the right choice because you're, <laughs> you're confined to a very small space and it's just, yep. it's just kind of depressing. And so I actually came back from that trip and I worked with my sponsor, uh, outdoor vitals, and they actually sent me a tent to try out on my next trip. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting back into a tent and, and, and having Definitely. a little bit more room in there. Yep. Yep. When you're, when you're kind of hunkering down, there's nothing, Nothing like having a little bit of space to, um, you know, space to, uh, to spread out. Now I will say with a larger tent, more fabric, when it gets wet, it is heavier too. You know, if, uh, if you've got a bivy soaking wet, a soaking wet bivy weighs less than a soaking wet two person tent. So there is, 
there is that. That's true. There is trade-off because, you know, I was looking at weight, you know, trying to get down to a very, mm-hmm. very low base weight, you know, not, I'm not drilling holes in my toothbrush yet, but I was, I was trying to find ways to save weight. And so I was going with a tarp, not a tarp. I was going with a bivy and a, a quilt and mm-hmm. uh, I like the quilt. The quilt's awesome, but I think, I think I'm going to, you know, I'm going to gladly carry another pound or so uh, and have a tent on hand yep. that maybe spread out a little bit. Yep. You know, I did, I did break my toothbrush in half to, uh, you know, to save a couple of grams. Well, you know, with a base weight of, of 21 pounds, that, that toothbrush breaking that in half, that's, that's important. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's, I want, I want to go back to your origin story here with your, with outdoor adventure. I want to hear about your background, where you grew up, what kinds of sports and hobbies were you involved in and how did you get involved with the, the through hiking cult? Which you know, through hiking is a cult. It, you know, it's it's an oh, yeah. it's, it's a, a group think that that convinces you to live in the dirt for days on end. So that's that's got to be a cult. Yep. There's a uh, there's an Instagram page that I think also also calls it a syndicate. Like it's some, some sort of you know mafia kind of. It's a, it's either a cult or a syndicate or uh, or something. But uh, you know, I hated the outdoors honestly. Like I was growing up, you know, my parents would would drag me out to. Uh, you know, maybe Glacier National Park or something, I would say, who in their right mind would want to go on a hike? You know, we're going to go up to some alpine lake. That sounds cold and miserable. And like, my feet are going to hurt. Can't we just like, I don't know, take a trip to the city, you know? And uh, and I I was not about it. It was uh, it was not really my speed. So did you grow up in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, in Boise, Boise, Idaho. Okay. All right. Um, so a lot of you know, phenomenal access to the outdoors, went a lot of great places. In hindsight, were incredible. You know, I hear, you know, all these trips to Yellowstone and to Glacier and all sorts of state parks. And, you know, and I, I look back, I'm like, God, why do you have such a negative attitude? Those were really great places. Right. And were you an only child? Uh, I have an older brother, about, about four years older, and he had a much more positive outlook than me for some reason, except now... I'm far more outdoorsy than he is. And I, I can't quite put two and two together. It's funny how that works out sometimes. Yeah. And so was it, was it car camping that you did or was yeah, it actually never, hiking never in? Backpacking. And... Okay. Um, yeah. Probably because my parents knew I would just complain too much. It'd be a miserable experience. So car camping was all they could, uh, all they could, uh, you know, make work, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You, you finish. And then I, I'll, oh. I'll hold my comment. I was just going to say that it was, it was not until high school really that I started to kind of ride some mountain bikes and I got into photography and, you know, with photography, I was able to, um, you know, go out into, you know, go out of nature and like cliches it may be, it was, it was quite literally a new lens on, on the outdoors. And it was an opportunity to really try to capture and frame, you know, the beauty. And I started to look at, the way the light would play across the hills or, you know, through a, through a landscape. And I suddenly started to realize like, holy cow, there's a lot of ways to like experience and explore this as well as like really recognize an inherent beauty to this that I don't think I fully recognized and understood. And it just like took off for me from there. Okay. Well, I'm glad you said that because that, that kind of was a, my next question was, you know, I'm always fascinated with the moment that somebody realizes that through hiking is a thing. And, you know, when I talk to the long trailers, I like to hear about when they first realize that there's such a thing as a trail from Mexico to Canada, and you can just actually walk that. 
and uh, you know, through the process of, of incremental progress, you're able to complete that. So, I mean, when, when did you realize that through hiking was a thing? And I'll give you an example from my own experience is I'm in, I'm in education. And when I was working at, uh, at a high school, I was talking to uh, one of our football coaches who was a junior high school teacher at the, the neighboring junior high and found out that he did, he was section hiking the PCT, that he would just go out for weeks on end in the summer and would hike for hundreds of miles. And I thought, what in the world? I have never heard of such a thing. Who, who, who would even consider doing this? I mean, why would you do this? And so that was my first realization that, that such a thing existed, you know, through hiking and, and the long trail. What, uh, when did you realize, well, do you remember that moment when you, you, you realized that through hiking was a thing? You know, I think, I think I couldn't put quite put a time on knowing exactly like when I knew it was kind of a thing because it always really seemed out there. You know, I think, I think the PCG kind of pops up in popular culture a little bit. Um, and I think I kind of knew like a friend of a friend whose dad had maybe done like the Washington section of the PCG, but I don't really know if I knew what that meant. The first time that I think it, it really seemed real to me was um, in the Wind River Range, uh, uh, kind of in the Green River Lakes, I, I came across a few uh, northbound CDTers. And uh, sure enough, I was like, holy cow, that's out there. Like that's, you know, here I am with my heavy pack and I was like, oh my goodness, I was carrying everything for our entire group, I swear. You know, I probably had a 35, 40 pound pack. Um, and I thought it was pretty light, you know, at the time. Um, and here I come across these folks, you know, that look like they're practically day hiking, like just a little bit bigger than what seems like a day hike pack to me. But, you know, they're like layers of filth and grit and grime. And I'm like, that's legit. Look at that. And that, that kind of got me thinking. And that's honestly the moment that also inspired me to do John Muir Trail. Because I certainly wasn't ready to go off and, and hike the CDT or the PCT but I was ready to try something a little bigger. And so I think seeing those CD tiers in the Wind River range was, uh, was what inspired me to um, do the John Muir Trail. Fantastic. And I can't wait to hear more about the Wind River range. I've heard others talk about it. I want to get your perspective on it. Uh, before we go to a quick break here, um, how do you pay the bills these days? What, how do you fund your adventures? What, what do you do for a living? Definitely. I work in the outdoor industry. Um, so I'm up here in Boulder County, Colorado. Um, just after I finished the John Muir Trail, I um, packed up my bags, zipped to Boise, um, packed up my whole life, moved to Colorado, and within a week of getting off the uh, John Muir Trail, I was working for Bear Vault, who makes the bear-resistant food containers for, for backpackers. So I work in marketing. I do a lot with uh, social media, web development, you name it, that's under the sun for marketing, and uh, I'm probably working on it at Bear Vault. Nice. Now we know exactly why you specified Bear Vault when you're talking about bear canisters in your earlier story. Hey, Very it's good. the best one. Even if I didn't work for Bear Vault, it was, it was the bear canister I owned before I, I had this job with Bear Vault. I, I really attest to that it's the most versatile product and uh, it's the best one on the market. Mm -hmm. Do they want to sponsor a podcast? Hey, I can look into it. Okay. Very good. And I also want to point out to our listeners who may not be watching this on YouTube that uh, Detour has behind him in his his home in, in Colorado, he's got a John Muir Wilderness Sierra National Forest wooden sign uh, hung, hanging on his wall. Did you take that off one of the one of the trail signs, or is that custom made? 
oh, that's actually my base weight. You know, the, uh, I took the whole, <laughs> whole sign there. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I got back and I, I looked on Etsy and there's a couple, a couple artists that'll put them together. And I thought it'd be, you know, some people do tattoos. And I was like, ah, maybe, maybe, maybe a tattoo, but uh, probably not. My family would kill me. So I, uh, I was like, you know what, I'll, uh, I'll fork over some cash and have this sign, uh, sign custom made. And it's, it's just great hanging up in my, uh, in my room. It looks pretty authentic. And um, you reminded me, I have a lot of people ask me, family members ask, aren't you afraid someone's going to steal something out there from you? And I'm like, no, that, that would just add to their weight. They don't want to carry anything extra. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> All right. Hey, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear about some hiking experiences out there. And I promise you, we will get to the weather stories. Hang on for that. We'll be right back. From the backcountry to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. Since 1984, Sawyer Products offers the best, most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun, bugs, and water. Using time-released liposome technology, topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going, knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. The John Freakin' Muirpod is sponsored by Outdoor Vitals, the ultralight backpacking gear company whose mission is to improve the mental, physical, and emotional health of mankind by facilitating impactful outdoor experiences. Outdoor Vitals creates innovative technical products with confidence inspiring education that empower outdoor ultralight adventurers. Their focus on performance enables you to live ultralight with gear you can actually be confident with. Whether you're looking for an ultralight sleep system, shelter, or pack, or if you're looking for top quality apparel for the trail, you can find it at Outdoor Vitals. Do yourself a favor. Live ultra light. And welcome back. We are talking to Detour. We got a little sense of uh, his background and growing up and, and how he pays the bills with, with Bear Vault. And now we're going to talk about some of his uh, hiking experiences. So, you know, when... You grew up in Idaho, a lot of hiking opportunities in Idaho. Is that, is that where it all started? Definitely. So I was in freshman year of college and um, a couple of friends got together. There were a couple of friends that had already gone backpacking previously. And they're like, you know, we should, uh, we should go on a little backpacking trip here um, into the Sawtooth Wilderness in Idaho. And uh, so I went down to the... Um, the outdoor like recreation program on campus at the university and they've got really cool gear rental, you know, for summer, something ridiculous, like five bucks, you know, got this ludicrous 80 liter pack and uh, you know, and, and I think I even like hammock camped and I don't know, it was, it was kind of all over the place and way overpacked and, and didn't really have the right gear, but got out of the sawtooth and I was like, okay, this is really cool. Um, hey, detour, so the danger, went, the danger of having an 80 liter pack yeah. is the, the urge to fill that 80 liter oh, yeah. pack. And I you, filled it. You I've got room. I've got more room. I'm, I'm oh, going to yeah. fill this thing up. And then it, you know, it weighs a ton. 
Oh yeah. I think I had a shirt for every single day. You know, I had underwear for every single day. Probably had a jacket for every single day. Heck, probably a sleeping bag for every single day. You know, it was, it was absolutely ludicrous really. Um, but we went up into, uh, into this area of the sawtooths and, uh, it, it was mind blowing, you know, uh, just being out there, you know, doing with a lot less than, uh, than car camping. Um, and just, you know, not having, not having self-service being around, um, being around friends and, you know, building those relationships, it, it really kind of lit a fire for me. Um, and then I spent a lot of time in, in the sawtooths. Like I probably, well, I probably spent the most miles on, on the John Muir trail, but you know, in, in all my hikes in the sawtooths is probably where I've racked up the second most miles. Um, you know, just constantly, it's only about, you know, two and a half hours from Boise and, you know, none of the approaches are too bad. You can drive up to a trailhead and after about a mile, you know, you're pretty much in kind of, you know, the subalpine and then, you know, tree line after maybe two miles and maybe even the alpine by the third mile. Um, so you can really, it's really accessible. Um, and even, you know, it was kind of where I really learned a lot of like compass navigation skills and kind of trip planning and found uh, this really old website about these guys back in the eighties that had started in this old mining town way on the backside of the Sawtooth called Atlanta. And they'd kind of hiked out to the more popular side near Stanley and Redfish Lake because everyone drives up Idaho 21 and Idaho 75 and kind of all accesses the sawtooths from kind of the north, uh, the northwest side of the range, but very, very few people on kind of the backside of the range, which is is still equally beautiful. Now, everyone out there, you didn't hear this. You're not allowed to go there. I'm just kidding. Like you can go, but uh, locals, locals might not be happy. Um, there's this little tiny mining community of Atlanta. I want to say population like 20 or so. Um, it's right on the backside of the sawtooth. And it's, it's a solid you know, two and a half, three hour drive on dirt roads to even get to Atlanta on just some of the worst washboard you've ever driven. So make sure your gas tank is full and you've got a vehicle that can withstand some washboard. Didn't they have the Summer Olympics there back in the early 90s? Yeah, it's, it's the, yeah, the other Atlanta. The other you know, Atlanta. I always, got I always go up Highway 21 and, and like, especially if I'm with someone new that hasn't been up Highway 21 before, I'll, I'll point out and be like, do you know there's a there's a shortcut over to uh, to Atlanta right there? It's only uh, it's only ninety miles to uh, to Atlanta from here. I go wait what? <laughs> now detours. We go through the these hiking stories. I want you to feel free to share any uh oh moments because okay. because bad decisions always lead to the greatest stories. Definitely. And definitely. so if, if you've got any moments out there where you're thinking, oh my gosh, how did I get myself into this situation? We want to hear about that kind of stuff. I'll share one from, from this hikes. So we went into Atlanta on the backside and I had done a ton of planning and kind of early seasons. I was looking at satellite imagery to see like where the snow was melting on the passes and see how much like glissading we would have to do. And, or we would just be post holding up to our necks, you know, I mean, what, what were we getting ourselves into? And I was actually really happy with the, the planning and preparation that I did there. And we came to this incredible route uh, over two mountain passes through the sawtooths and just connected these different basins together. Um, and on our last day, as we were kind of coming down towards uh, Redfish Lake and uh, the cool thing about Redfish Lake is kind of the grand finale of this is you can hike an extra six miles out to the kind of this lodge and parking lot or this big long alpine lake. You can take a shuttle boat across and take like a jet boat ride. 
and it's a heck of a way to end a uh, to end a trip. But before you get to the jet boat ride, you kind of are going along this creek as you start to kind of exit out through this just grand glacial valley. And there's this one spot where the the water kind of starts to run over these um, run over these slabs, and the slabs are are pretty smooth, and the water is you know is pretty is pretty gentle. Like there's a couple water slides on the um, on the JMT that are you look at it like that's absolutely crazy. It's 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 quite a bit more quite a bit more gentle than that. However, it's not completely gentle. You know, it's kind of the water kind of splits to like a right hand side and a left hand side. And, um, you know, we kind of were going down, just sliding down the right-hand side, having a lot of fun. And I, uh, I mistakenly dared one of my friends to try the left-hand side of, you know, water's a lot more, a lot more powerful than it looks. And you know, thankfully my friend wasn't, wasn't injured too badly, but, you know, kind of slid down, hit a rock wrong and kind of tumbled into the water. And, you know, you, that water could be really, really swift. And that was like kind of a wake up moment of, holy cow, you know, like this doesn't, this doesn't mess around. And like, thankfully we're, you know, about three miles out from the trailhead here. And we're, you know, we're basically done with this four day trip, but at the same time, yikes, you know, um, like nature can be pretty unforgiving. So I think that was one, one kind of risk management wake up call for me. Okay. And was your buddy okay? Yeah. He ended up being, he had to go to the chiropractor and whatnot and kind of get his, get his back worked out. And I, you know, I feel, I feel really bad about it. Cause it was, it was kind of me that egged him on to, to go try it on the left-hand side. Um, but thankfully he didn't, he didn't break his spine or anything. He had to get his chakras realigned. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Nice. Okay. And let's move on to, to Wyoming and the wind river range. We, we've talked about this a little bit um, in previous episodes with some former guests and um, I always hear that the wind river range is very similar to the Sierra's except they're better. These people, you know, they, they, they say that it's, it's even a little bit more epic, a little bit more remote. And so I want to, I want to hear your take on the wind river range. The wind river range is definitely out there. And there's a lot more that I want to, I want to experience in the wind river range. So I've just done this kind of one little mini through hike. Um, so I hiked from the green river lakes trailhead to Elkhart park via the knapsack coal. Um, and so basically there's a little shuttle company in Pinedale that'll take you up to from basically the Elkhart Park Trailhead up to the Green River Lakes Trailhead. I want to say it was two, three hundred bucks for the shuttle. Um, and that allowed us to do basically as a little through hike. And I can't remember the exact mileage off the excuse me, the top of my head, but I want to say it was around a 40 mile little mini, mini through hike. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it's uh it's interesting. My my perspective of the Wind River Range was that it was going to be this completely undiscovered, vast wilderness, not a soul out there, like kind of like one of like the last true, like undiscovered places. And I think some of that was influenced by reading a lot of the Knowles literature. You know, you read the Knowles and you hear about, you know, doing these 30 day expeditions out there and it just sounds so remote, like something you might only outside of that find in Alaska or something. And it was definitely a shock for me to show up and, you know, it was a zoo. There were people on people on people. Really? You know, you're constantly passing people on the trails. It was so busy. Okay. And, and it was just like, I didn't expect to see hardly anybody. And it was nonstop people, hard to find a legal campsite. Um, really, really challenging um, 
really challenging conditions in that in that sense. More or less crowded than than the John Muir Trail. Depends on where on the John Muir Trail, but often more crowded. Wow. Okay. And you mentioned that you went from Green River Lakes to Elkhart Park via the knapsack call. Uh, For our listeners out there who may not be familiar with with that terminology, can you explain what a call is? Yeah. So the way I always love to describe it is you have like uh, basically a, a saddle, a pass, a coal, and a notch. And those are in order of increasing difficulty. Ray, so like one, one more time. Give, give it that, give it, give us that order one more time. A saddle, a pass, a coal and a notch. Okay. So in my, in my kind of way, I think about it, like saddle is like really chill. You could probably take your wagon over it, you know, like think about um, where like I 80, you know, crosses the Connell divide. Like it's, it doesn't even look like much of a, you know, pass. It's just like, is like really gentle saddle. Um, a pass is like any of the ones on the John Muir Trail, except for maybe Forrester. Like Forrester's like a lot of engineering went into that. But, you know, most of your passes on the John Muir Trail, you know, you kind of come through, you know, kind of a rise, like you're crossing from one basin to another, but it's, it's pretty big and open. A coal is quite a bit tighter. Uh, um, you know, maybe you're kind of scrambling up there. We're talking second, maybe even third class climbing. Whereas a notch is like narrow. It's like a little you know spot maybe between a serrated you know knife mountains and you might be doing full-blown rock climbing to go you know over a uh, a notch so this was a coal it was the trail kind of peters out um and you you hike about another mile up and there's again i didn't expect to see a single soul up here and there's there's no trail it's all kind of this second like kind of difficult second class climbing up the side of this you know towards this little uh, coal in the rock so you know a, an opening between two peaks and sure enough there's like you know probably two dozen people out here we're, we're you know 15 plus miles from the trailhead off trail hiking up towards this coal in the rock and on second class on the trail and there's 15 20 people out there also doing it anyway so you hike up there you reach this beautiful beautiful spot where you can look into both basins and you look down, there's a glacier that you actually go say down a ways. Um, and then you kind of hike out down and you come to the top of what's called the Tipcomb Basin, which is a big destination for a lot of people in the river range, but they all kind of come up through the bottom. And instead you kind of pop out at the top of the Tipcomb Basin and get to come down through the Tipcomb Basin and then eventually out to Elkhart Park, um, kind of via the more popular trails there. Um, so I would, I would highly recommend recommend that route for anyone uh, but definitely do it later in the season as um you probably would need um an ice axe or even potentially some rope to make like a snowball or to to safely navigate the cornice on the um the east side of that coal as you come out of the glacier mm-hmm. and have you had any training in those areas in mountain uh, for glacier travel yeah glacier um, not, travel. not a ton of formal training this glacier it's it's one of those glaciers that's, you know, it's practically a snowfield by now. It's it's still a glacier. I didn't go over towards the right-hand side of the glacier. There was um, what looks like there could be, um, you know, perhaps one or two small crevasses over there. But the, the main route is very well-traveled um, and does not have um, much hazard to it based on research that I was doing. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't have kind of formal glacier travel uh, experience. It's, it's nothing like, you know, inside of Mount Rainier or something with one slip and, you know, you're completely in some, you know, giant thing or going off 
or hanging to rack. Here it's, you know, it's very gentle. They'll say it takes you just gently down okay. into, a, into a flat area. It's, it's very forgiving. Got it. And I have here that in your time in the Wind River Range, that kind of lit your fire for long distance hiking. Definitely. Kind of doing that, that, that uh, mini through hike and seeing a couple CDTRs out there. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. this is pretty sweet. I'm, I'm, I want more of this. I want to figure out to do this with a lighter pack. Um, I also might want to go solo and, you know, kind of do this at my own pace and, uh, and go faster. Now, you know, Detour, that there are a lot of people that listen to this podcast who uh, love the outdoors and they love talking about through hiking. They love doing through hiking, but there might be an occasional listener who tunes in and, and, and thinks, you know, why? What, what is the allure of through hiking? What is the allure of living in dirt and, and pooping in the, in the outdoors and, and uh, carrying everything on your back? That doesn't sound like fun. Can you, can you share a little bit about, you know, what is the allure of through hiking? It's, it's the holistic experience. You know, I don't think it's any one part, you know, because there are some really low points as we'll touch on here soon. Um, but there's also these just euphoric highs, but it's not the euphoric highs either. It's the, it's the entire experience. I think I would, I'm actually going to explain it best through the same experience of backcountry skiing, actually. You know, in backcountry skiing, you, um, you put in a lot of effort, right? You've got to plan for the avalanche conditions. You've got to dig pits. You've got to dig more pits, hand pits. Um, you've got to skin all the way up. You've got to read the weather. You might have to turn around. All of that, and then you get just a few minutes at best of just you know phenomenal skiing, right? You can't do it just for those euphoric high moments of you know those, those couple of moments of skiing. Same thing goes for you know the John Muir Trail. You know, you, you can't do it just for those kind of mountain pass moments. It's about, you know, not just embracing the suck. That's a big, big part of it. It's the holistic experience. It's the planning. It's the preparation. It's the storytelling afterwards. And it's all of those pieces put together. Um, and the way you just get immersed in that and the culture of it, that is unlike anything else. That is an excellent description. Yeah. Because I I've often said that it's, you know, it's hours of torture interspersed with moments of just sublime beauty, but it's more Precisely. than that. It, it's not, it's like you said, it's not just those mountain pass moments. It is everything else. I also like to lump in there the, the power of incremental progress yep. and uh, looking back at the end of a day and knowing that you started on the other side of that, that mountain pass over there, that is off way in the distance. And you did that on your own. You did that on, on foot power. There was no, there's no bus, there's no shuttle, there's no yes. train or anything. You got from here to there and uh, did it on your own. And oh my it, goodness. it is such a, I don't know, a confidence builder. It is, is so satisfying. It's so tangible too. Like, I mean, there's few things in life that are that tangible and where you can say like, yes, like I did that, you know? And like, no one else did that. No one else carried my pack. No one else carried me. Like I did that, especially after I, you know, exited the trail and I was in, um, you know, driving from Lone Pine back up 395, you know, towards, towards Idaho. And, you know, you got the whole Sierra going by on your left. You see all the signs for the different trailheads. You're like, Oh, Bishop pass. You're like, wow, I remember Bishop pass. That was like, you know, I don't know, two weeks ago or whatever. And you're like, wow. Oh, you know, there's the turnoff for, uh, you know, for Yosemite. Wow. That was, you know, however many weeks ago, whatever. You're like, 
holy cow, you know, here I am driving. This is not a short drive, you know, and like all this is going by me. Holy cow. You know, that is so tangible, that progress. Yeah. This summer I did the Southern half of the John Muir trail mm. basically drove up on the, the West side of the Sierras, uh, up, up to Fresno, kind of make a right-hand turn into the, into the Sierras and drive up okay. to so like mountain, trails end or uh, these, these mountain roads take you to Florence Lake, which is near oh, Muir yeah. trail ranch. Mm-hmm. Right. And yep. so we, we started there and, and, and hike South. And I remember on the final day coming down off of Whitney heading into Whitney portal and the, 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 the people who all smell good, who are out on a day hike, hiking up and they, they would see my, my shoe was falling apart at that point. And, you know, I, I, I look pretty grungy and people are asking, you know, Hey, where'd you start? And I, I, I just got so much joy out of telling them, yeah, I started near Fresno. And then the, the double take on their, their face, like, what you, yeah. you walked from Fresno to here. I'm like, yeah. And they, they just can't believe it. Oh, I love that moment too. You know, I'm, I'm not one that's, that's in it, you know, for the recognition of others, but you can revel in that a little bit sometimes. And, you know, people be like, Oh, where you come from? Where'd you, you know, where'd you, you camp? And they, you know, they, they'd all think you're, you know, kind of one of those camps, you know, people that are kind of doing advanced base camp before somebody with me. I'm like, Oh Yeah. You know, I, well, last night I was, you know, I was in uh, uh, Guitar Lake, but, but originally coming from Yosemite Valley and they're like, Yosemite Valley. Whoa. So it's, uh, it's quite a, uh, it's really, it's, it's honestly a good feeling, you know, yeah, you get a little affirmation there. Yeah. Now I understand you've also done some time in Utah with some desert hiking. Look at, I mean, look at this resume, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah. I mean, these are the spots to do some hiking. Yeah. Everything, but everything, but the East, um, it is kind of an ironic place to do a shakedown for an Alpine hike. Um, I, I kind of did a little bit of a shakedown for the, uh, for the JMT this spring down in Coyote Gulch in, uh, in Utah, um, which is, was really cool. My time really doing desert hiking, um, which, you know, in, it's actually quite a bit harder to navigate when you're not in a canyon. Once you get in the canyon, it's pretty easy. You just follow the water and, you know, it'd be pretty hard to get lost. But something interesting about Coyote Gulch is you have to do actually a couple miles of overland navigation to get to your spot to drop in the canyon, as well as after you exit the canyon, a different point to get back to where you park your vehicle. So we're like really having to rely on a lot of like compass skills and, and map skills there, um, which was really, really cool. Um, and just, you know, that everything drops down instead of rising up, you know, the Sierra, everything rises up around you. And even when you're at any of the passes on the Sierra or in the Sierra, you know, the mountains still rise up around you, but, you know, in the Coyote Gulch, with the exception of some distant, you know, kind of mesas and whatnot, you're kind of the high point often until you drop down into the canyons, which is, is really cool. Um, so I, I really enjoyed Coyote Gulch. I'd recommend it to anyone. Um, except that that road getting in there is pretty pretty heinous. Fifty miles of washboard each way um, to get in there, but uh, it's uh, it's it's certainly worth it. Um, you know, you uh, you kind of are in this. I, you could you could define it as a barren wasteland. It has its own you know beauty to it, but you know it's very kind of stark desert up top. And then you descend down, and you're in, like this lush oasis. And you just realize how vital water is to, to kind of life in the desert. And you just follow this ribbon. And, you know, I wore sandals and just walked through the water um, rather than hiking boots. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience to just, you know, kind of um, 
walk through the water and you know, see these unbelievable arches and you know sandstone formations. And then the exit out is really cool because um, you know it's it's actually pretty pretty steep. Some some say fourth class, some say third class, but it's it's kind of this tricky tricky little exit out that actually adds a lot of um, excitement to it. Um, and we rigged we rigged a fixed line um, for that to exit. Okay, hey, a quick hiking pole, and I spell pole this way: P O L L, uh, not P O L E. Uh, nice, nice play on words there. Hiking pole. I like pole. it because uh, because I just heard what you mentioned: uh, trail runners or boots. Trail runners. Um, and oh, okay, you the, mentioned uh, you mentioned boots. You, yeah. You, when you're not in your boots, you're in your sandals. Yep. Well, you know, prior to the prior to the JMT, I definitely definitely wore boots, and I still have a pair of boots lying around. And I think there's a couple. A couple there's, there's times and places that boots are are nice um you know if i'm if i'm going to do something with a lot of scree where i don't need my approach shoes i'll wear boots because they handle the scree really nicely um like so a few of a few of the 14ers in colorado um i'll actually wear wear boots up them because they just keep the all the little scree and dirt out pretty well um and provide you know um some some level of support, even though I think my trail runners have have plenty of support. Um, and then you know, doing more technical things, I'll I'll wear my approach shoes. Um, there's more you know third and fourth class climbing, um, but uh, but yeah. So for the John Muir Trail and for Coyote Gulch, um, well, Coyote Gulch was a combination of sandals and trail runners, and the John Muir Trail was was all, all uh, trail runners. And I did the uh, La Sportiva Bushidos. Okay. Very good. I was going to ask what, what brand. Very nice. Yep. All right. Now, without further ado, our listeners have been tuned in. They've been waiting for this moment. Let's get to the Jamir Trail and the, the weather that you encountered there. So tell us, tell us about this. Go yeah. Ahead. So most severe weather in the Sierra occurs when you get pinched off monsoonal moisture. So think your classic Colorado summer thunderstorm. Of monsoonal moisture piping up through Mexico, um, New Mexico, Arizona, into Colorado. Occasionally, based on how the jet stream is, a portion of that moisture can get pinched off and move up over the Sierra, and you'll get, you know, afternoon thunderstorms, which can be, you know, pretty troublesome. Something very, very strange happened uh, in in late June uh, uh, of 2021 um, due to the massive heat wave that most of the Western United States was experiencing that created this large bubble of hot air. And that actually completely altered the atmospheric currents. And this really wet, moist air came down out of Canada over the Pacific Ocean and up into the Sierra, where it promptly collided with that hot air. So you had the high elevation, high moisture, and hot air, which was really a combination for just just downright um horrible horrible weather um i mean really what what i i don't have you know official data on him but i i think this could be you know some some close to record record bad weather um so the first night wasn't bad at all so this was actually my very first night little yosemite valley there was a little thunderstorm in the distance maybe got a couple drops of rain wasn't worried about it. Ever thought everything was fine. Day two, actually, even though I ended up uh, summiting uh, a peak in 
the evolution ASIN that had a day that ended up having more elevation gain. Uh, this day actually had the most planned elevation of the trip to go up clouds rest. That's a good 4,000 feet climbing. It was going to go up clouds rest and then over to the sunrise lakes for the um, for the night. So climbed up clouds rest and you know still had I think at that point a six day food carry to get me to, to Red's Meadow. So and you know, did, definitely didn't have any sort of trail legs and so I was I was feeling it you know and working pretty hard and got up and really relaxed at the top of clouds rest and I want to say I got up at the top of clouds rest oh around maybe nine ten a.m. Um, pretty early. Um, and not long later, I was like, wow, there are some pretty big cumulus clouds starting to build um, in the distance. And I'm like, wow, those are awfully big. They're not just, you know, for 9, 10 a.m., those aren't just puffy little cumulus clouds. Those cumulus clouds are starting to tower. Um, they clearly have convection in them and they're getting pretty tall. And I'm, they, were, they were substantially out to, out to the east, um, kind of looked near the edge of um, where Yosemite National Park, you know, turns into Ansel Adams or the John Muir Wilderness out there. So, but I'm watching these clouds, just, you know, looking out of Yosemite Valley, taking my sweet time, eating an early lunch. And sure enough, at, I want to say like, I don't know, maybe 11 a.m., one of these clouds starts to glaciate, which is where you have the super cooled water droplets that have been thrust up into the atmosphere by upwelling. And then they finally start to, to crystallize because they're so super cool. And then they rapidly crystallize. And that's the moment that it crosses from being a cumulus cloud to a cumulonimbus cloud. And then at that point, the, the cloud is the propensity for thunder, lightning, and that those ice crystals begin to precipitate down and out and you know, will either be carried back up and form a hail as they go up and down or fall to the earth as, as rain, as those ice crystals um, grow and precipitate out of the cloud because um, they don't have the buoyancy to stay up unless there's a really strong updraft, which later in the day we certainly got. Um, so that was that was a pretty big red flag for me that um, that you had had cumulonimbus clouds thunderstorms at um, you know 11, 11 in the morning, um, which you know I in my mind that shouldn't happen until two at the at the earliest, you know. Um, and here I am on top of, you know, clouds rest is really, really exposed point. And not to mention it was hot. You know, I'm, I think clouds rest is maybe pushing eight, 9,000 feet. And I think it was in the eighties. It was, I was cooking, sweating. So I, I boogied it down off of clouds rest towards the sunrise lakes. And I'm telling some of the people, cause it's, it's a pretty popular long day hike to get up there. And it's, the sky is filling with clouds and it's getting pretty dark. And I'm telling people, hey, you know, maybe, maybe you don't want to go up there. You know, it doesn't, doesn't look good, you know. And some people are, I don't know, it's hard to know what people did, but I was more focused on getting on to my destination. And I actually uh, was starting to hear a little thunder in the distance and the sky is real dark, but I, I actually made it down to the Sunrise Lakes, which was probably another, I don't know, four miles or so. And um, the, uh, I kind of got started setting up my tent and, I was far more concerned about the mosquitoes actually than the thunderstorm, really. They were just after me. And so it ended up actually being kind of a blessing. I set up my tent really haphazardly. I have one of those, so the REI Flash Air 2 does not have poles. It's a non-freestanding tent. You need to get the stakes out at the perfect angles. And uh, I just had it really haphazardly set up. So I'm just constantly, you know, slapping these mosquitoes. And um, all of a sudden, 
um, there's this ridge about a half mile away up on, uh, kind of above kind of the middle sunrise lakes and a tree on that ridge gets absolutely drilled with lightning. And it's just like a one, 1,000, two, 1,000. Oh, and I'm like, Oh, wow. That's probably close. So I kind of step back and suddenly the mosquitoes didn't matter. And I look around at the phenomenal tent spot I chose. And I look around, there's like two trees near my tent. And they both have these giant, gorgeous lightning scars just spiling around both of them. I'm like, well, I chose excellently for my tent pad. And so I'm probably about, I'm probably like, oh, probably like 75 yards from the trail and maybe 150 yards, 200 yards from the lake. So I kind of went halfway in between my tent and the lake where there's a bit more uniform tree cover. And I went down there and just kind of sat down on my bear vault thinking that was probably a pretty good insulator from the ground. Um, and just try to find where the trees were the most uniform. And um, and so the storm kind of came up and I just got that point where it was just like nonstop, like it never stopped thundering. Just, you know, I've, I've seen some pretty good thunderstorms, but, um, you know, just be, you know, one rumble would not fade out until the next rumble, just rumble and rumble and rumble. Rained for a little while and the hail started up pretty quickly and it, it, was, it wasn't too big of hail, it was around pea-sized hail. Um, and then the lightning really picked up and it was just like a lot of a flash, bang, flash, you know, like really quick. It's just flashing right around. You're just like right in the thick of it. And um, I could still kind of see out towards the lake um, through the trees. And all of a sudden, I start seeing these massive splashes on the lake. And there's just like something is like impacting the lake and it's throwing water up like pretty high in the air. And it's like working like just all these like giant splashes in the lake and it's working way toward me. I'm like, oh, no, I know what that is. That's, that's hail. And it's already hailing. And the, and the lake's whipped up, but there's just these gigantic splashes in the lake now. And I'm like, oh, no. And so I, I just tried to kind of put my, my kind of hands over my neck. And the hailstones got up to about the size of quarters. Um, and they were drilling down. And I, I eventually got pretty big, pretty big bruises on my shoulder and kind of like all around from these, from these hailstones. And they were just, you know, probably some 90% of the hailstones were the kind of small pea-sized ones. About 10% of the hailstones mixed in were just these absolute monsters that just, at that point, they don't really sting anymore. They just hurt. Like it just, it just kind of feels like you're getting punched by the sky. Um, and so I kind of, I got off my bear vault and I tried to try to kind of get my shoulder underneath this rock. And like, I don't know, I'm still getting just kind of drilled and like, um, and, then, and at this one moment, I actually didn't have my, my hands behind my neck. I kind of had my hands out in front of me. And first I saw the flash kind of came first like everything just kind of was like instantly white. Um, and then I kind of felt like this, this light, like, uh, the, like this, this kind of surge into me, like everything kind of like kind of yanked and kind of jolted me a little bit. Um, and then the loudest like sound you can fathom, like it's so loud that like my ears didn't even really process it. They're just like so loud. You can't really comprehend it. And then so the light kind of faded out. Um, and you know, when you look at the sun a little bit too long, it kind of gets like that spot in your eyes. I kind of had something like that, kind of a weird line through my vision. And my ears are just ringing and ringing and ringing. 
And then all of a sudden I realized I can't really move my hands. Like I, I realized that like my hands are kind of a little twitchy. And I'm like, they're not, they're not cold. Like they were cold, but like, this is not just like cold. And I tried to make fists and I couldn't, I couldn't make my hands make fists and they just would kind of twitch. And like, I tried to kind of feel my hands and it was kind of like that pins and needles sensation. Like when you fall asleep on your hand and it was a little bit in all of my extremities, but mostly my hands and they were just kind of freaking out. And I just kind of waited out. Um, the hail went back to about pea sized um, from the quarter size. The quarter sized hail probably only lasted about 15 minutes through like, like the most intense part of the storm and the lightning started to kind of move away a little bit. And I slowly regained full, full, full motor control of, of my hands. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a tree just about 50, 50 feet away from, from what I can tell. And, um, and I just, I was just like really glad to be okay. You know, I've always had a, a healthy respect for thunderstorms. I'm not the guy out on the ridge, like, bring it on, come on, show me what you got. You know, I've always been like pretty responsible around, you know, severe weather. Um, you know, I, I understand that, you know, lightning is not something to mess around with. And I try to do my best and get in uniform tree cover. Um, so I'm just, you know, really, really thankful to be, to be alive and, and to be okay. Um, you know, lightning, I, I, I'm aware that you know, later this summer on the John Muir Trail, there actually was a was a fatal lightning incident down in the area of Muir Trail Ranch, um, which is, is heartbreaking. And my my heart goes out to everyone you know, everyone involved there and family and friends. And I just I uh, it really it really is scary, you know, knowing knowing that that happened to someone and, and what my experience was. Um, and I, you know, technically after an experience like that, you're probably supposed to, to go get checked out at a, at a hospital or something. But I, I didn't, I felt, I felt pretty fine. I mean, obviously a little shaken up and a little, little scared and a little cold. Um, Cause you know, your rain jacket only does so much when you just get hit with that much, that much hail. And um, so I, it's still hailing, but most of the lightning had moved on. And so I kind of went up to where my tent was. Um, and, and the fact that those mosquitoes had been after me actually ended up being kind of a blessing. So it's in a haphazard. So the hail had actually collapsed my tent. And so, cause I was, I was sure my tent was going to be tatted. It was just going to be giant you know, holes through it. And if I'd had a freestanding tent, it probably would have been, you know, shredded, but because I had the tent up haphazard, it was covered in a, you know, it was under two, three inches of hail. Um, so I was able to kind of shovel it out and get it set up and get inside my tent. Now, most storms, most mountain storms I'm used to, you know, it, it kind of looks dark and stormy. The clouds, you know, look good, whatever. Um, rains for five, 10 minutes, hails for five, 10, rains for maybe another 15, a little windy, and then the storm moves on, right? Life's good. These storms were unlike anything I've experienced before. So by this point, it already was an hour into this hailstorm. By the time I went up back to my tent, you know, and it hailed for three hours straight and continued to rain for another four. So it hailed and rained all the way until sunset. Everything was soaked. So, I mean, it, these storms uh, were just, just some of the most intense I have ever seen. And this was really just the start. Wow. 
What an experience. And I know the, the incident you're talking about with the, uh, the, the poor guy who, who passed away from a lightning strike. I, I was in that spot the day before. So it wow. happened the, the day after I was there and, um, yeah, what, what an experience. I mean, that is, that is frightening. That is scary. Yeah. That is, that is epic uh, that you were that close and lived to tell about it. And, just uh, and you never would have thought you'd have heard yourself saying, you know, thank goodness for the mosquitoes. Uh, yeah, never saved your heard, tent. Never thought I would have said that. Yeah, yeah, just you know, praise the Lord. Um, just mm-hmm. really, really thankful to uh, to be alive and to uh, to kind of retell that and you know, and tell other people, you know, it's lightning is serious, and you know, you gotta you gotta take precautions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was just the start, believe it or not. Um, that. That kind of weather pattern repeated itself the next two nights. So I got to Tuolumne Meadows, um, and sure enough, it hailed for three hours straight and rained for another four until sundown. Um, they, and you know, plenty of close and scary lightning. The lightning wasn't quite as bad that night, um, and thankfully, you know, didn't have any that close. But, you know, people, people were starting to get, you know, pretty freaked out and going, you know, the weather, weather on my garment says, you know, 5%, you know, what, well, this is currently certainly more than 5% chance of, of precipitation. I think this event was so bizarre with this moisture coming out of Canada that I think a lot of the forecast modeling were just like struggling to kind of comprehend what it is. And when you had that hot air and the moisture in the high Sierra, it was just this, this terrible mix um, so the, the third night, um, got up to kind of, uh, the first footbridge before, as you're kind of heading up in upper, upper Lyle Canyon, still kind of in the sub mm-hmm. sub Alpine, but as you start to really climb up there and, you know, and also, you know, starting early, you know, starting at four or five in the morning, starting in the dark, you know, looking it out there. And something that also caught my attention that day heading out is I you kind of come up along the Tuolumne River for just uh, just a mile or so, and I had been at the Tuolumne River um, about a week before. It had been this like placid little you know gentle stream. It's like the summer with no snow, right? So the river was you know a fraction of what it should be, and it was like this dainty little stream, practically much not the you know mighty Tuolumne River. Let me tell you, you know, on this on this day, the the Tuolumne River was gushing, and I looked at some data after the fact, and it was gushing even when I thought from the week before to then there was seven times more water in the Tuolumne River, and and, and it wasn't just the Tuolumne. I mean, there were areas the trail was washed out, and were massive hail flows filling up the trail. Um, you know, I'm I'm sure some of the trail crews, I boy you know, huge shout out to anyone out there involved in trail work. That's hard work and respect because um, I know a few trails were really damaged in, the, in these storms in the Yosemite area and, and probably beyond um, with, you know, some flash flooding that, that occurred and hail flows as well. Um, but, but regardless, I digress. So I got up to, to upper, uh, uh, the upper Lyle Fork, got my tent set up and you know, try to get an absolute perfect pitch and Okay, how would the water run? How would the hail mountain? By this time point, you know, you're kind of a, you're kind of a little scarred, you know, like your whole focus kind of narrowed. It was like, honestly, it was, it was a little bit more of a, 
a survival perspective at that point than, you know, really enjoying the experience. I'll be honest. Like it was, it was getting pretty, pretty serious. And you're kind of getting this point of like, I don't know how many more days I can do this. Like it's taking everything I can to hike as fast as I can to try to still make my mileage. And I wasn't shooting for long mileage by any means. I was kind of taking the slow boat, John, your trail, right? And it's taking everything I can to pack up first thing, everything wet, take aways, eat a really quick lunch and try to dry some stuff out, get up to my campsite and get the perfect pitch and hopefully a spot that won't become a lake or a river and, um, and then weather this storm, right? And that was kind of like what I knew I was in for that day. And sure enough, um, you know, about two o'clock, you know, the hail and lightning and rain started up and, you know, you just kind of, you're in your tent. And thankfully I brought this two person tent because, you know, you're spending eight hours a day. Well, actually, no, if you count sleeping, you're spending 16 hours a day in your tent, right? You know, you're, you're confined to your little, you know, three by three by six uh, rectangle. And I was sure happy to have a, uh, a two person tent there. Um, and, you know, and still you got to get, if it's hailing for three hours, you have to get out every few minutes with your little poop shovel to, to dig out the hail so the tent doesn't collapse. And you're constantly, and you can't just like sit there and read your book. You're constantly like pushing the hail off the tent so the head, tent doesn't collapse and praying that, you know, something doesn't break. Uh, but, you know, your trekking pole doesn't flex too much from the weight of it. And, and even the best spots, you know, you look at the spot and by the third day, you can see where the hail and the rain has been. You think you choose a good spot, but even the best spot still has these just rivulets of water coming down and, you know, and the hail piles up on that last day of storms, the third day, um, you know, the hail piles up three to four inches deep in a lot of places. And like where it ran off my tent, I mean, it was eight, nine inches deep of hail that I was shoveling out with my with my shovel. And I, I recognize that you know, it's not best to dig channels in the dirt that can alter the way, you know, water drains and kind of the, the kind of the micro ecosystem, but I kind of had to do it in a few spots because it was, I was going to be in a lake. And I, I, the next morning I would, you know, kind of smooth out those trenches and try to make it look like I hadn't, you know, kind of changed the way the water runs off. But you know, it was, it was going to potentially actually become like a serious hazard or threat to um, to not kind of mitigate the uh, the runoff there. So on on the morning after that that third storm, there was family that I had kind of been hiking along with, and they were great, the Gawthorns, and I had kind of become almost like an extended member of their family. And they were they were going to do a good bit of the JMT, not the whole thing as a family they had these big marmot limelight three-person tents they were they were packing pretty heavy as a family they had like those big um like classic like msr white gas stoves and everything and and you know and they're like you know we we came out here with three season tents and this is four season conditions i mean this is this is this is real and so they they actually turned back um and i i don't blame them and i know a lot of people that that turned back because for all we know you know everything the weather app said hey there's you know, five to fifteen percent chance of, of thunderstorm. But everything we knew for five to fifteen percent was all hell's going to break loose here in about eight hours. And you know, we got to get over Donahue Pass. And um, you know, I seriously considered. You know, I was like, I have planned for this for months. I have I have put a lot of money and time and my identity into this. Like, should I give up? I really considered it. You know, 
Um, and that was, that was kind of a low point, but you know, I was like, I've done it for this many days. I can, I can, I can go one more at least. Like I, I can, I can go one more. And so, so I, I got up at about four in the morning, packed up as quickly as I could and started my way towards Donahue Pass. That's where I met um, Pepe Le Pew and, and his hiking partner, um, traded stories and the trail was completely iced over. A lot of places the trail was flooded or had water running over it. Um, I mean, it, it looks like, you know, fall conditions, like hiking in fall snow or something. And it was slippery and icy and a, a few of the, um, the, the water crossings that normally would be rock hops were full-blown wades and just icy cold, you know, 4 a.m. water. Um, it was, it was tricky. Um, got over Donahue Pass and uh, the clouds were starting to build behind me and I boogied on down to Thousand Island Lake and uh, sure enough, I looked back for Donahue Pass, looked like a thunderstorm over there, but, but somehow, all praise be to God, the storms did not form over Thousand Island Lake and I actually got a uh, sunburn that day and I could not have been happier. The best sunburn <laughs> I have ever gotten in my entire life. That's fantastic. You know, Ivy Tat, he's a, a long, long trailer out there who just got off the CDT. I talked to him last year uh, after one of, after, I don't was it his AT or his PCT hike? I, maybe it was his AT hike. And um, he see his piece of advice was never quit on a bad day. Never quit. Never, yep. never let the trail make you quit. Always Absolutely. You know, quit on your own terms uh, when, when the, the, the reasons are right, but don't, don't, don't be discouraged, you know, keep plugging away, persist, that kind of thing. I got some pretty good advice and that seems yep. to be the, the attitude you took as well. Absolutely. You know, and I think there's, there's definitely some times, you know, where, where maybe risk management, you know, if you're going to be mm -hmm. in a really yeah, you know, dangerous situation, but the reality is, you know, there was, I had done my research. I knew that there was, again, you know, I could find some limited tree cover in around Thousand Island Lake or, or even you know hair beyond if I had to, mm -hmm. um, and I knew that you know I was able to you know dry my gear out a little bit. I wasn't you know in danger of hypothermia or anything. So, so really, it was was my mental grit. You know, was the right. only thing holding me back. And so I'm glad I I'm glad I pushed on. But the reality of it is that wasn't the last of severe weather. Um, that that big event with that Canadian moisture was done, but there were two more events of monsoonal moisture actually. Um, so. Evolution Lake um, had a terrible, uh, terrible hailstorm um, uh, going over Muir um, Pass, had a challenging thunderstorm. Day after that, got absolutely hailed to death at Palisade Lakes. So three more days of hail. Wow. Then to top it all off, the creme de la creme, the, uh, the last two days of the trail were very eventful as far as, as, far as weather goes. Um, so uh, second to last day or second to last night camped at um, Bighorn Plateau, which I would recommend to anyone. Uh, just a stunning spot. I will say um, I expected the most challenging place to set up my non-freestanding tent to be somewhere really rocky, like on a rock slab. No, Bighorn Plateau is by far the hardest because that soil is really sandy and I couldn't get the stakes to hold. And it was a little breezy. It's really exposed up there in the Bighorn mm -hmm. Plateau. Yep. So it was a nightmare trying to get the stakes in the ground in the Bighorn Plateau and get my tent pitched. I'll just I'll just put that out there. So um, go to the Bighorn Plateau, do it if you have a freestanding tent or a lot of patience. Um, got up the next morning, um, and the sky just looked 
really, really threatening um, at, uh, golly, at 8 a.m., I think. No, even before that, it must have been, must have been around 6 or 7, whatever time sunrise is, getting out of the tent and the way down to the, way down to the south, you know, past the John Muir Trail, probably even past the Cottonwood Lakes area. I could already see a full-blown thunderstorm, you know, the glaciated on top and producing lightning at, you know, 7 in the morning. I'm like, well, this, this doesn't bode well. So hiked through the rain um, up to Crabtree Meadows where everyone kind of this whole kind of trail family and people that I knew and people I didn't know, we all just kind of hunkered down there because that still had a good bit of tree cover. And um, really one of the biggest blessings was um, my father is a, uh, is a meteorologist for the National Weather Service. And so via, I actually don't have a Garmin. I have another brand called the Somewhere device, which I would highly recommend to anyone. If I could give a, uh, a second must be gear review, it would be the uh, Somewhere satellite communicator. Um, it's a phenomenal device. And I was sending some pretty detailed paragraphs back and forth between uh, my father and I. And um, he, he was able to give me some just way more detailed weather information than you can get on you know, your Garmin or kind of just that that basic weather that you can pull on any of those devices. And he was telling me, you know, the weather's, the weather's marginal, but, you know, it looks like you might have a window. And a lot of people were saying, you know, golly, I was planning to exit the trail tomorrow, but, you know, perhaps going to wait it out another day. Um, so right around you know, an hour before sundown, the storms kind of moved off and continued up to Guitar Lake. And it was ominous. I mean, there were low clouds hanging over all the mountains. I mean, Whitney was like kind of draped. I mean, it was... It was one of the most dramatic scenes I've ever seen. Um, I mean, just this like richness and depth to kind of this, this glowing sunset and you know, the air was just really kind of wet and heavy. Um, and it was, it was foreboding, it was ominous. You know, here you are at the base of Mount Whitney um, and you know that there's you know, a, lot of, a lot of kind of lightning risk and whatnot. And, um, but you know, you're planning to go up there the next day. And so I went to bed. I'm like, well, it's the last night. You know, it should be, it should be pretty clear, not hundred percent, but you know, I'm, I'm tired. Everything's wet. I don't really want to pitch my tent. I'm in a cowboy camp for the last night. So the only night of the whole trail, I'm in a cowboy camp. And uh, so sure enough, around 11 PM, I, uh, I feel something kind of wet in my face. I'm like, ah, what could that be? And sure enough, I kind of wait up, wake up and it's kind of pitter patterns, really light rain. I'm like, uh, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. And I'm like, it'll, it'll let up, it'll stop. And no, it didn't. So, you know, forced myself to get out of my sleeping bags. I'm like when this down's going to get soaked in a, in a heartbeat, if I'm not careful, I need to address this. I'm like, I am freezing cold. You know, I'm not about to go pitch my entire tent here. It's like super rocky. Like this would be a, probably a 20 minute ordeal to get the tent properly set up here. So I just grabbed the tent, pulled it over me like a big old blanket and uh, just used the tent as a, uh, as a blanket. And it just kind of, it rained for about um, an hour or so, or an hour and a half until my alarm went off at, um, at 1.45 in the morning was my time to start hiking for my Whitney Summit bid. And um, so everything was soaked. By this point, I didn't really care because I knew I was exiting the trail. Like earlier on, those first storms I described, I was religious about keeping things dry. At this point, I didn't care. Like mm-hmm. pack right. my backpack haphazardly. You know, my bear vault's almost empty. So I'm throwing like all sorts of stuff. I think my sleeping pad was in my bear vault, you know, just like just 
get it in there and let's get going, you know? And, um, so I'm, I'm hiking up, you know, the backside of, of Whitney there as you start to climb towards, um, towards trail crest there. And, and I knew that basically from the weather information I had that the storm's moving due north. Okay. And so it's two in the morning and there were three lightning storms at two in the morning. There was one to my north that I wasn't worried about at all. That, I think that was the one that had rained on a little bit and it's flashing lightning and throwing bolts. And there was one to my Southwest and one to my Southeast. And it's really hard at night, especially to tell how far out they are. So it's like, are those storms going to move to my West and then my East, or are they going to move right towards me? And I, I earnestly didn't know. Um, and my hope was, was that I could get up to kind of that, that ridge, the first of those kind of notches and get a little bit of cell signal actually and be able to look at the radar loop um, and see exactly where those storms were. Um, and so I'm you know trucking it up the backside of Whitney in the middle of the night, my headlamp. And you know, normally I understand it's a pretty busy affair, you know, of people kind of hiking up in the night in the dark. And you're but probably the only guy out there. Were, yeah, exactly. People yeah. were freaked out about the weather. I had it. I was the only one on the mountain. So I get up to that, you know, I, I kind of stash my bear ball and a few heavy things at, at kind of the junction there. I get up to that first window and there's no cell service. And I'm like, okay. And I kind of had this moment, you know, I'm like, this is definitely risky. You know, I've, I've already had one lightning experience here, but those storms are to my Southwest, my Southeast, but I have come so far to get to this point to accomplish this mountain. You know, it's, it's been just looming there. It is such a tangible goal. Like, I'm going to make it. Even if I just like touch that summit and turn around and book it down, I'm going to make it is what I told myself. And, um, you know, thank goodness to hiking South and, and really good acclimatization. I was able to run to the top. I was able to jog the whole way, jog and run. Um, except for a couple of those little, little bit more kind of tricky bits where there's kind of some right. detached blocks and stuff. But most of that trail is like a super highway. So you know, I was able to just run run up the trail with my headlamp on, on full blast, got up to the summit, I think about, I don't know, four or something in the morning. Um, entire thing myself, I kind of expected somebody to be like sleeping up there in the shelter or something, but no, completely, completely a ghost town, all myself. And I was able to get self-service and sure enough, those storms were my Southwest, my Southeast. So I knew I had a little bit of time to spare. And so just got to watch a little bit of the sunrise. It was just spectacular there normally the sunrise and wind is like big john muir trails tradition you know i'm sure a lot of people on the podcast come on Mm -hmm. and say that's how they finish their their hike nobody up there all to myself and i probably should have left the summit a few minutes earlier because sure enough due to myself the storm started to build up and i eventually started to book it on down and it started to snow on me at fourteen thousand feet and um i got over trail crest and started to go down and all hell broke loose another really intense storm, Holy a lot of hail, a lot of lightning. I had someone that I know on the trail, just about a mile behind me. It, there was a bolt of lightning that actually struck pretty much directly on the trail, almost exactly at trail crest. And when I was not even more than a, probably a half mile past it. And I know someone was up there and he said his hair was all standing up and doing the, the whole thing. Um, and just, you know, that trail is, is the switchbacks are really carved there. But the engineers that built that trail didn't really think much about water runoff. So all that entire trail was just flooded on kind of down the those 99 switchbacks, yeah. whatever. Yep. So at points, you know, the water was ankle deep, freezing yep. cold water. The hail is coming down, the lightning's everywhere. 
got down a little bit kind of where it levels out. And then all of a sudden from kind of high on the right, I'm not exactly sure what, what mountain that is, but if you're kind of facing down the valley, down towards Whitney portal, you know, Mount Whitney is kind of up and behind you, up into your left, the mountain kind of up on my right, just released this gigantic rock slide. And I mean, it just came thundering down. Like I thought it was thunder at first, right? Cause there's a bunch of thunder and lightning, mm -hmm. but it had a different, more visceral rumble. And, um, and these blocks, I mean, there were a couple of the size of the home, lot size of cars and every size in between down to pebbles and just, just this big chunk of, of mountain rolling down. Um, and thankfully the trail is kind of up on kind of, but I think might be a bit of a medial moraine there. Um, Cause they're kind of low, kind of some, some low kind of areas on both sides of the trail. And it, so thankfully it wasn't near anybody or, or where it would hurt somebody. It just kind of, you know, cascaded down into that low area um, in the base of kind of the, the valley off to the right there. I'm like, holy cow, well, that is definitely, um, definitely the Sierra's parting gift of, uh, of great weather. But got down to the, um, to the, uh, the burger shack down there and devoured a burger in the pouring rain. And uh, it was great. Best burger I've ever had. Yes, I concur with that. Now you you had you would look forward to this trip. I mean, this is this was kind of a, an epic moment for you. This is you're, you're branching off from this forty miler uh, experience in the Wind River Range, and, and now you've got this 211, 250 mile uh, mm -hmm. through hike planned, and you do it during probably the most challenging. Uh, series of weather events that you could possibly encounter out there. So that, that, that had to be uh, frustrating at times, but also at the end, looking back, you know, extremely satisfying that you, you weathered the storms literally. Yep. Absolutely. It feels, it feels really good. It's a great sense of accomplishment to, to push through that, not, you know, not to skip a section and to, to stay strong. And uh, I, I, I'm really thankful, you know, it's, uh, without some challenge, it's, uh, you know, it wouldn't be the same. And I'm just really thankful to have finished it without injury and, you know, with a smile on my face. Yeah. A lot of type two slash type three fun out there. Definitely some type three out there. I, I would even, even bargain maybe some type four at, uh, at a few points. <laughs> hey, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, I'm going to, we're going to hear what's next for detour. We're going to go through some of our closing segments. And I also want to hear about some highlights on the trail because we talked Absolutely. a lot about the, uh, the challenging times, but I want to hear about some of the highlights. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Want to make a podcast? Spotify has got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your pod podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. And welcome back. Talking to Detour, we have just heard some incredible moments from the trail, some challenging moments, incredible weather. 
And I have to tell you, uh, you've really done a great job selling how awesome it is to be out there. I think there'll be a few less hikers out on the trail next year after listening to this episode. <laughs> but I know, I know that it's not all the the doom and gloom and the and the the challenge of the of the weather out there. There had to be some some just awe-inspiring moments and just fantastic beauty out there. So we're gonna go with the top five list, the top five best moments from the JMT. Absolutely. And if you can kind of compress that down to about, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds per moment, that would be perfect. You got it. Um, you know, some of those worst, uh, worst storms seem to have the best sunsets. So it was like this weird high and low. So you'd have terrible hailstorm, then a great, you know, sunset. So like um, this sunset at Ocean Lake after getting hailed on, just phenomenal. Um, you know, getting on top of Mount Whitney, um, being the only one up there, that was, that was magical. Um, up on top of Muir Hut during one of the storms, there were about 15 of us up there. We were all sharing stories. I was telling people about how weather works, how a cloud glaciation happens. And this guy was playing his flute. I mean, it was like this really cool bonding moment. Um, but one moment that really sticks out to me was actually at the Ray Lakes. Um, I came across this family that was backpacking and they were backpacking quite heavily. Um, on the Ray Lakes, they actually chose to get mule resupply, believe it or not. And um, I mean, they had hammock, inflatable couches and big tents. I mean, they, they really brought it all. They must have had 40, 50 uh, pound packs. And I kind of enjoyed talking to them. And they had just gotten that mule resupply in. Now, they had a few people bail on their trip. So they had a bunch of extra food. And so that night I chowed on fresh fajitas and fresh brownies and like homemade salsa. I was in paradise. I mean, it was some of the greatest trail magic I have ever experienced. And uh, so shout out to uh, heavy innovator Gassy and all the folks up there at the uh, Bay Lakes because uh, you seriously, seriously made my, uh, made my night. That was, that was a high point. Fantastic. That's trail magic right there. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Hey, Detour, you know where we are? Uh, I would think maybe the pro tip insight of the week. That is absolutely correct. What, uh, what nugget of wisdom can you share with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better? I would say get a wilderness first responder training. You know, it's a little bit, a little bit spendy, um, but I think it could come in, you know, really handy. I chose to get my wilderness first responder training after witnessing a climbing accident um, in Idaho, where another uh, another party made a pretty serious mistake rappelling off the end of a rope. And um, after that, I chose to get my wilderness first responder. And it's it's really a great piece of, um, of education to have. I think education is something that you can take into the backcountry that doesn't uh, weigh down your base weight at all. So um, go ahead and get your wilderness first responder. That is an excellent recommendation. So there you have it. This episode is just about in the books. Hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Detour. I want to thank him for joining us this week. Detour, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? You know, uh, I'm always on Instagram with my handle at G-R-A-N-T-B-B-A-C-H. I'm always posting stories and uh, adventures in Colorado. I'd also ask people to... Uh, Check out the Bear Vault social media at uh, at Bear Vault. Um, we're always, you know, posting fun giveaways, information about bears, and proper food storage. So check out those. Uh, check out those. As as part of the marketing team at Bear Vault, do you control their their social media? 
Oh yeah. I'm in there every single day. Yeah. I noticed the bear vault started following me today. Yeah. That's probably the reason. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakamir at gmail.com. Detour, I'm also looking to you to share a recommendation for a book, a movie, documentary, some kind of adventure media to keep our listeners connected to the trail. What do you have for us? Totally. I found this YouTube channel called The Gear Skeptic. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this guy, but he goes into, for some, probably excruciating detail about um, different topics like water filtration or um, basically packing your food. And something that he really dug into that was a game changer for me was was really getting you know calorically dense food. And I, I thought I knew what calorically dense food is before this hike. And I mean, he kind of rocked my world and I really, really got into it. And it was something important because like, I'm a skinny guy. I, I have almost no body fat, you know, um, I'm six feet tall and 125 pounds. And, you know, a lot of people go into these trails saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. I'll be fine. And I'm going, I don't have 10 pounds to lose. Like, I will, I will not make it if I lose 10 pounds. I can't just pad, you know, that a pound of fat is 3,400 calories and hope for the best. I've got to get my food dialed in. So between his stuff, doing a lot of research, I built these incredible spreadsheets that listed out basically every calorie that I was planning to eat and built this whole index of how difficult I thought the day was going to be, how many calories I thought I would need, and really getting a grasp of this idea between you know, balancing volumetric density with caloric density. And I mean, that really shook my world. And um, you know, I was comparing some of the foods that, that, um, that I would have eaten you know, previously backpacking to what I ate you know, on the John Muir Trail. And I did some math and from my longest section from uh, Muir Trail Ranch to um, like Independence Valley, um, Kearsarge Pass, I probably would have been another 10 pounds in food normally if it wasn't for what I learned from the gear skeptic. So it's, uh, it's some pretty lengthy videos, expect some, some numbers, some math, but uh, I, think your, I think your food weight will thank you. Okay. Gear skeptic with some excruciating details. Very good. And before we wrap things up, I've got one more segment for you called, what have I not asked you that you're dying to tell us about? Um, you know, I just want to recap how important it is versus food storage is. And when you're on top of Kearsarge Pass and you're out of water, don't drink a double IPA because the way down will be very, very hard. What could go wrong? Who knows? <laughs> that is a wrap from the John Freaking Muir Studio. Any shout outs to friends and family detour? Uh, um, yeah, just, you know, really thankful to finish this whole thing without injury. I, I want to thank my folks for the ride down to California um, so I could start the hike. Um, huge shout out to my trail fam, uh, Ed, Raquel, Danny, Aaron, Zach, Haley, and everyone else who I got to meet out there that, you know, was a tramley in some large or small way. Y'all are awesome. So just thank you so much. And really, really wonderful to be on the podcast this evening. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if you're standing on your bear vault, being pelted with hail and dodging lightning. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. Thank you.